0: The most important thing is knowing your own core values. They do not care who is in the White House. They just want to get back home to their house. What's the value I'm bringing in here?
1: One of my favorite memories as a child was when my Aunt Eva would come and visit. She was my glamorous auntie who was always off in some new country around the world. And every time she returned, she would come with two gifts, a toy or a book and a bedtime story. I'd make her repeat those bedtime stories to me again and again. And here's a version of one that has recently been on my mind quite a bit. Once in a village, there were two neighbors, Matovu and Chumul, who could never agree on anything. Their most significant contention was the boundary line of their properties. Each felt that they were deprived of a precious few inches of land. The village chief grew tired of their complaining and came along to solve the dispute once and for all. He took his stick and started marking a line on the ground. It clearly gave Matowu the land he was owed, or at least he felt he was owed. Matowu started to cheer, but then the chief turned around and started to draw another line on the ground, one that gave Chumalo what he thought was his. And so now confused, they both asked, "'So chief, which of these boundaries is correct? "'Who owns the contested land?' "'This land,' the chief declared, "'pointing his stick at the space between the two lines, "'belongs to both of you. "'On it, you will plant a guava tree "'and share its produce. "'Each one can take as much food as he wants, but only as much as he can consume in a day. As the tree flourished, its leaves stretched out onto both Matovu and Chumalo's property, and it produced more and more guava. So much more guava than Matovu and Chumalo needed to have their fill. Soon they invited the whole village to come and eat from the guava tree whenever anyone was hungry. And that tree became a sign of the unity of the community. I love this story because It points to this idea of a third way of the power of an imagination for compromise and cooperation where there was at once only division. And it feels like that is something we so desperately need in the country right now. And an organization that really understands this is Dream.org. It's an organization that's redefining bipartisan cooperation in America. Dream.org pushes beyond the rigid divides of political lines, focusing on crucial issues like climate change and mass incarceration, and most powerfully insisting that the solutions need to involve legislators from both sides of the aisle in order to make progress. They recently celebrated a significant bipartisan victory of Criminal Justice Reform Act in California, impacting Black and brown communities in particular. At the helm of this impactful organization is Nisha Anand, a visionary leader with a deep commitment to fostering change and unity. Nisha's leadership and Dream.org's initiatives symbolize the essence of finding common ground for the greater good, much like Matobu and Chumulo were able to. In today's episode, we'll drive into the heart of Dream.org's work. We'll explore some of Nisha's story, and how she ended up at the helm of this powerful organization. We'll explore different strategies for bridging divides and why at a time that it is so easy to feel hopeless, Nisha and others like her see lights of hope and how together they're crafting solutions for some of the most pressing issues of our time. So stay with us as we uncover the stories of unity, innovation, and progress with Nisha Nand of Dream.org. Let's dig into our conversation now. One thing that is kind of front and center often when you describe yourself is your Indian American heritage and some of your parents' experiences as immigrants. And I'm curious how those aspects of your origin story, really anything else when you think about those formative years in your childhood, shaped your approach to social justice.
0: Absolutely. You know, looking back on it gives the perspective. I don't think growing up I had quite the perspective as I was living it. But my story is a lot like a lot of other first generation kids. There is this need to be a translator for your parents, both literally translating the language, but also figuratively, like being the person between the old world and the new world. Sometimes it was just helpful. Here's what to do. Sometimes it was mischievous. I remember quite often getting away with things by saying, Dad, that's, just how it's done in America when, I, when I'd when i have to you know go someplace. But being that translator and that bridge between two worlds really does lend itself to something of a superpower, being able to see many sides, being able to figure out how to bring people together to have a common understanding or a common way of being. So I think growing up, being a first-generation American, I was also a brown kid growing up in Atlanta, Georgia in the 80s, which was very much a divided black and white town. And I was often, I mean, I still get it today the question of what are you yeah. when people want to know, you know, your background? I didn't really fit in anywhere, but I mm-hmm. think that superpower in that ability to build bridges meant that I actually belonged everywhere. So mm-hmm. I found myself just one of those lucky people that was part of every social group. And, you know, I could be part of any different kind of clubs. I could talk a lot of different languages with the different groups that I was part of. And that really helped. And I didn't realize how much of a form experience that was until fast forward almost 50 years later. That's what I do for a living in terms of social change and social justice work. I try to bring people together from all sides of the aisle, from every different view of a conversation. If we have a shared interest in making a difference, I'll find you a seat at the table and we will try to get something done.
1: One of the things I'm just a little curious about, as you mentioned, being able to play in a lot of different spaces, I often think about my childhood the same way. But one of the things I struggled with because of that was figuring out who I was. And it felt like I could fit in, but there was a little bit of a sense of, well, who am I going to be? And as I was emerging as a leader, actually, that was a bit of a like crisis of identity and existentialism because I felt I'd become so good at kind of morphing into Mm. different roles in different places that figuring out who I was. Maybe it's like I shifted from translator to chameleon. I'm curious one, if you ever run into that, and if you didn't, what do you think are some of the things that were safeguards on your own individual identity?
0: I think that difference between chameleon and being authentically yourself is a really hard one to distinguish. Mm -hmm. I think that the most important thing is knowing your own core values. What is most important to you? Mm -hmm. Because being a chameleon, as long as you don't lose the core values, you're not actually changing who you are. You're simply figuring out how to exist in a certain space. And so that's what we do too, is I want you when when I build that big table and I ask you to come sit down for solutions, I want you to bring authentically exactly who you are. Do not change your core values. Mm -hmm. We can have different core values and all of them be valid. Mm -hmm. Often when I'm doing work with both Republicans and Democrats, I bring a really strong sense of community. It's one of my core values that I want to do something for community first. I always think about the greater need of the whole versus an individual. And so that means if we're talking about building a highway, for instance, I can say how this highway is going to impact this one community, disproportionately and that might have you know racial implications or you know implications around you know ability to get to jobs and opportunities. Someone else might come at that and look at it from a very different angle. They might think about the individual pursuit of what is necessary and how this might have a different outcome for people who are building and trying to create a town that is viable. And I won't think of that individual piece. And so if we can come to the table and say you have a value towards the individual pursuit of opportunity and I I have a value towards community as a whole, those aren't necessarily in opposition. They could actually guide each other. We can point out each other's blind spots. Mm -hmm. And so I think for me, figuring out the difference between being chameleon, which can, I think, on the bad side, be people pleaser, right? Just like make sure everyone's comfortable all the time and ignore yourself versus the type of chameleon that can invite everybody into the space to be authentically themselves by being authentically yourself. That's probably how I found myself. I was also always very bold, very much like here's who I am and I'm different. I think I had to own my difference hmm. so that it didn't feel like, you know, I mean, sometimes no matter how much you want to fit into a space, we have this color on our skin that means we're not going to. People will see our difference. And I think I embraced that early and and just kind of owned it.
1: Were there pivotal moments specifically in your early life that kind of geared you towards activism in any of the different forms that it's played?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think part of the culture that my parents brought over from India was definitely a drive to succeed. My father's an engineer, which is a very typical profession for someone from India. I was raised with the idea that my brother would be taking over my dad's business. Mm -hmm. I was to get good grades and be beautiful so that I could find a suitable husband. That was really what was driven into me Mm -hmm. from a young age. And that was not me. I Mm -hmm. definitely remember saying things like, I don't want to clean my room because I'm going to one day have a stay at home husband I'm not going to be the one cleaning and i would i would have these little acts of rebellion and I think that in order to pursue that path I didn't just have to break the mold a little bit with snide comments like that I had to break it a lot and so I think I was like I'm not just gonna be a pretty wife I'm also not going to be an engineer I'm gonna follow this American spirit of be whatever makes you happy that is completely foreign to my family that is not something that they consider they also didn't have the luxury to consider Quite honestly, they had to think of how if they were going to leave the country, how are they going to make it economically? I was the first one lucky to dream and be able to do whatever I want. And so I broke the molds and I broke it in, in a really crazy fashion. When I was young in college, I got arrested over a dozen times throughout the years for different causes. Just saying that. To some folks are like, you did what? <laughs> and, um, and so in the early years, it was, it was kind of like, I remember conversations where my father would say, one day when you're like me, you'll want to be a member of a country club and you'll want to have a house in the suburbs. And mm-hmm. I remember just thinking, oh no. I guess I've been following that path ever since.
1: Activism today feels more fraught than ever. As somebody who's kind of like played the long game in activism, how much do you agree or disagree with that view? And, and what data points do you pull on?
0: I think it is more acrimonious right now than it has been in the majority of my lifetime. There is an increase of polarization everywhere, not just in activism. And so we do work the way the world works in terms of the social change sector and trying to make a difference in polarized times. I think you're going to see that in our sector, just like every sector. I don't think it is the most polarized in all of history, but certainly in my lifetime, I haven't seen it be this fraught. I think when I was young, we were just fighting to be known. There wasn't a lot of appetite for big swings at change. And I know with the global justice movement in the 90s, like the protests against the World Bank and the -hmm. World Trade Organization and IMF World Bank, we were very much on the fringe until I'd say Occupy Wall Street when it became a little more mainstream and people thought about what is economic inequality? What is the 99% was the phrase that went there to explain the difference between the 1% who control. The majority of the world's wealth and the 99%, which is everybody else, yeah. that could be considered, you know, poverty line when you look at the world okay. economics. That was when I saw a turning point for people being invited in to be a change maker. When we were on the fringe, young, trying to make change, and not many people knew about what was necessary, this was a post civil rights era. And, and whenever you have big wins like that, there is a time period of like, relaxing where folks are like, well, we had the big win. So things are good now. Right. We experienced, honestly, a little bit of that during Obama's election right afterwards. Mm. we were like, good, we're good now, and didn't understand yeah. the backlash that was going to happen because of that. There was a bit of an invitation, I think, during Occupy Wall Street, which was refreshing. Mm. And I think we saw that opening up of mm. everyone could be included in this. And yeah. I think that there was a lot of possibility just in the last few years of making it more inclusive, but mm. instead, a lot of things turned towards polarization. Mm-hmm. I just think of the first moments of the pandemic when we were we were very polarized. I'm not trying to say everything was wonderful before the pandemic. Remember, Trump was elected.
1: Yeah, yeah. People
0: and families stopped talking to each other because of how yeah. they voted. We didn't think we could ever come together again. And then this horrible moment of the pandemic hit. And you saw briefly for like a month, yeah. everyone having an analysis around essential workers and frontline workers. All of a sudden, you cared about the people who grew your vegetables mm-hmm. and got the stuff to the grocery store because you had no other way to eat you had folks outside their apartments banging pots and pans for all of the folks going to the hospital there was a moment when we understood how interconnected we are how we all could play a part In helping our neighbor and Mm. making the country better, by I mean, for a moment there was like, let's protect our health and and whatever we knew how to do, and it and it turned to division. Mm. And I think that summer there was another moment, again a horrible circumstance, while we all were trapped at home because of the pandemic, going nowhere, and we all witnessed collectively together at the same moment the brutal killing of George Floyd. There was, I had never seen so many participants and not just social change. This is a racial justice issue. You had corporations throwing money at any group they could find. Yeah, people were like, oh, that's not real change. But that was remarkable. Some of those corporations had never spoken up on any issue. And they were about to speak up on police brutality, something that folks would even deny existed. To me, that was remarkable. But we lost that moment by being, and I don't want to trivialize it, but there is you know, and I can speak on the left because that's where I'm from, for, sh- for sure, is a bit of purity politics that mm-hmm. in order to be part of social change or part of this movement or that movement, you have to say these things exactly this way. You have to act a certain way, talk a certain way, your money, your income has to come from a certain piece. You couldn't have been part of this or that. There's mm-hmm. so many restrictions that mm-hmm. it becomes what is supposed to be bringing more people into the vision of what could be an American dream. How can we get to this idea of opportunity for all? Instead, it became, instead of getting a bigger and bigger circle, our circles got smaller and smaller. You had to look, act, be a certain way. So yeah. we found our inclusive left, which we're supposed to be bringing in all the people who've been left out and left behind. We were creating a new class of people who weren't part of it. I also think there was an equal problem on the right as well, is that the right became smaller and smaller and smaller as Mm -hmm. well and they were the loud loudest segments they still are proud boys the people who marched on the capitol on january 6 we had before that the tea party we have all of these different factions of the right becoming extremely exclusive they're very loud and it's causing this kind of movement towards the polls
1: Why is it more politically prudent today to make your circle small?
0: I have a few views on it for sure. If you look at the population of America, you're still going to find what you studied back then that we are a centrist nation, that the majority of people and a huge majority of people are falling in the middle, you know, left and right, but mostly centrist. That is the population. The two places where you won't find that is one in Congress. Mm-hmm. They do not represent centrist. Congress, we are electing extremes. And the other place you'll find it is on social media. Mm-hmm. The loud loudest, I think, people who speak on any issues are on those extremes. That Mm. is such a small minority of humans in this country, but they are the loudest and they take up all of the air and all of the oxygen. Mm. It sells on media. These are the kind of stories that are sensational. That's always sold. But Mm. now we have social media. So Mm. if you want to put out a view that actually is what most of your neighbors feel and think, whether they're on the right or the left, you will get slammed or shamed or canceled or something on social media, or you'll have people coming after you. They now look and find where you live or where your family lives. There is so much of those hyperactive people that make it hard for anyone to speak out If you've gone to a gathering in your neighborhood, you've probably talked to people with plenty of different views. I mean, you and I live out here in the Bay Area, so maybe not as much as the rest of the country, but you do and you can get along with people that are so different than you. And they're not actually saying most of the extreme things. If you have a good conversation, if you know how how to have a productive conversation and not just point fingers and blame, you'll actually find that folks will disagree with the party they vote for, or they don't even know what's going on with the party they vote for. So I think that we have to do a better job of being willing to communicate our real thoughts and opinions out loud and Mm -hmm. not be scared of what social media is going to do. And then we have to elect different people. And that's much harder because of of you have folks running not on what the majority of Americans believe, because if that was true, we would never would have had any of these abortion laws that have come out in the last few years. We would not have these trans laws or the critical race theory things that are happening in strange parts of nobody actually there's no majority that feels that way. But our politicians know they can get elected on a very small subset of people based on how the districts were drawn. So I think the two places where you don't see that desire to kind of end the polarization is Congress and elected officials and on social media. So maybe those would be the steps. I'd
1: look into how to solve those. One of the reasons that I really became enamored with your story, this language of common ground and radical love has kind of, this is not a new thing for you, like like the issue that we're talking about here, and, and has been really core to how you've thought about what progress really needs to look like, and really where you have led dream.org. And I think what's been responsible for a number of the pretty incredible wins that you guys have had on a number of issues, but particularly when I think about criminal justice reform in California. And so I just would love like an example to bring that to life and, and perhaps maybe one that might surprise our average viewer in terms of the breath of folks who can truly come together around a table Mm -hmm. for a cause when you're kind of telling your like, yeah, your banner story of what is possible ground, what comes to mind?
0: It would have to be, we're actually coming up on our five year anniversary of passing. What I think would be one of the biggest accomplishments of my lifetime was a bill called the first step act which was passed five years ago during the trump administration mm-hmm. it's a criminal justice reform bill and if we rewind back to the year 2000 when i was activist college i mean this was a little bit after college uh nisha and i was on the streets at the republican national convention in philadelphia and we were on the streets this is now 23 years ago protesting the criminal justice system, the death penalty, police brutality, and we were outside the Republican National Convention. And there was not a single Republican protesting with us, right? We were on the outside. We were, you know, the activist of the moment. And when I took this job at Dream.org and we were Rebuild the Dream back then, I was told that one of the things we were going to do was pass bipartisan criminal justice reform. That was 10 years ago. Mm. And I laughed and I said, that's an oxymoron. I've never heard the word bipartisan and criminal justice reform in the same sentence. I was a high school senior in... uh, Uh, 1994 when we passed what everyone now calls the crime bill, the 1994 crime bill. And that took both parties to pass it. But Mm. I was in Newt Gingrich's district and I was protesting like I was. And this is the bill that saw the largest increase in mass incarceration in our history. It sent so many people to prison and kept them in prison and kept them under conditions that would bring them back into prison if they got out. And this was a travesty. Three strikes laws, mandatory minimums. You've heard some of these things that have gotten more folks in prison. So I thought there was no way we were going to pass bipartisan criminal justice reform. But here's what was happening in that moment that we had to look for. You have to look deeply to find these places of agreement. But I'm from the left and I came at it as this is a justice issue. It's a racial justice this issue i thought it had a long history of criminalizing certain people in order for capitalism to exist right i had this analysis that's very much from the left but looking deeper there was also other people who cared about criminal justice reform the religious right they believe in second chances they're generally anti death penalty they mm-hmm. believe in something called redemption so there was a part of the religious right that was with us that wanted to see some reform We also saw fiscal conservatives really interested because taxpayer dollars kept getting increased to fund prisons Mm. where no one was getting better. It was a losing industry. When you look at an industry and you say, give me more money and we're going to get you worse outcomes. There is nobody who's a fiscal conservative that would say that's a good idea. So they started looking at. How do we reduce taxpayer dollars? And it would be, well, if we get more people out of prison and Mm -hmm. not have them in prison, might help. And so you had fiscal conservatives interested. And then libertarians as well, who think over-policed, over-incarcerated, don't like everyone... I mean, prisons were overcrowded with people on marijuana offenses, and some of them very, very minor. Mm. So you had three parts of the Republican Party interested in criminal justice reform. We actually put together a coalition with Van Jones, who's a founder at Dream.org, and Newt Gingrich, one of the authors who was Speaker of the House during the crime bill. They happened to be on a CNN show together at the time, Crossfire. And they said, let's do this. Let's see what can happen. Mm. And together, we built this coalition. Everyone mm. thought it was bananas. When Trump was elected, folks said we should probably start, tra- stop trying to push this. It'll never happen. Cause under the Obama administration, it seemed like a lot of promise. Under the Trump administration, people thought, I don't know, you know, it probably won't go far and lots of different political reasons that people didn't want to continue. But we we thought there is nobody inside prison who wants us to stop. They do Mm -hmm. not care who is in the White House. They just want to get back home to their house. And so we continued and we Mm -hmm. fought and we passed the bill, the First Step Act. It didn't have everything we wanted at the end of the day to pass a bill in Congress. You need the president's signature. So we absolutely had to figure out how to get that done. We did not just pass it with bipartisan support. This was in a Republican-led Congress. We got 89 senators to vote yes on the First Step Act. And Mm -hmm. since then, 30,000 people have come home from prison. That's not possible without having a big bipartisan coalition. And it's not Mm -hmm. easily overturned. If you Mm -hmm. bring people along, you have a durable solution. Mm -hmm. You have something that will last for a while. Mm -hmm. And we want to see that continue.
1: Are there tips you can provide us on what like the right kind of conversation looks like and the wrong kind of conversation?
0: I think that the first thing is don't enter a conversation trying to win an argument, trying to be right or having a prescribed solution in mind. For the work I do, I have an idea of the solution, but what I want to bring into it more is the values. What's the value I'm bringing in here? And of course there's certain parts of my solution I'm going to fight for. I'm going to fight for it to the very end. So I'm not saying be a completely blank slate when you enter a conversation, but be okay with being surprised, learning something you don't know and changing then what you think. Yeah. And so one of the first things I do just quite practically when you're in a conversation is look for a place of agreement. Look for it often and agree. Mm-hmm. And an example is during the pandemic, my son's a baseball player. He's now playing baseball in college, which is just wonderful, but Same. Everything shut down in the state of California. And yeah. no one was allowed to play. He was a pitcher, and I knew he wanted to go to college and pitch, and he couldn't shut down his arm the way pitchers are, they have to keep using their arm. Yeah. So we joined this team that was rebellious because they weren't going to listen to any of the mandates. Yeah. And they played tournaments throughout the pandemic. We went to Arizona, we went to Texas, we went to all of these other places for tournaments because I spoil my kid rotten. Let's just say that. <laughs> but these parents were almost all Trump voters, Republicans very, very different from me. And that's who I spent all of my in-person time with during the pandemic. And so one of the conversations around masks that we would have, because people really got divided at some point around masks, you either had to wear it or you didn't. And I'm sure everyone remembers these conversations. So in that type of discussion, when we're talking about you should or you shouldn't, Mm. I would find a place where I agreed with the people who did not want to wear masks. For Mm -hmm. instance, they would say, I don't want to put a mask on my kid. They have pimples and now they're self-conscious and it's ruining their lap. I agree. It does cause pimples. It does suck. It really, really sucks for children. Or I have a hard time breathing. I have a hard time breathing too. That's true. You can agree. It does not mean you're changing your position. But too Mm -hmm. often we deny and we don't even want to acknowledge the places of agreement. But then Mm -hmm. we seem like we are crazy because it's true. So if you're saying like, oh, no, breathing's fine. Mm -hmm. No one's going to believe the next thing you say. So I always find places of agreement and just keep doing it often, 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 because then they will also find places of agreement. Yeah, And then you can explore disagreement. That's just like one practical thing. And also don't be scared of disagreeing because that's what democracy is based on, that Mm -hmm. can have different ideas and come together and figure out a way to make it work. That's what we should be doing. But we jump away from disagreements. We see disagreement as having to be polarized, mm. but it really doesn't have to be. Mm. If we don't want our people in Congress to say you have to vote completely down the line, you either vote Republican, Democrat, the end, we have to show that in our everyday
1: conversations that we can do things that we might not have thought possible You guys got a pretty large check from Bezos that kind of transformed the operations and strategies. And on one hand, I think provides a lot of relief, but I think puts even more focus on your role as a steward of capital for this organization. How did significant funding shift operations or strategy for gene.org
0: So just to clarify, there were two big gifts that came in from Bezos. One was a $10 million gift when he started the Bezos Earth Fund. Mm. One of our biggest programs is our climate program. It's our oldest, longest, biggest program so getting that gift was huge for us. And that gave us the ability to think about how do we scale? Because most of our donations are from foundations, you know, going anywhere from $20,000 check to a million dollar check for the most part. So a $10 million check was the biggest we'd ever received. After that, our founder was awarded a Courage and Civility Award. So Bezos has chosen, I believe, three people to give $100 million, uh, not directly to, but he asked, how would you direct me to give away a $100 million? Mm. And our founder, was one of those people. And so a big chunk of that came here to dream.org. Those two big donations mean that I can sleep at night. (laughs) I can just say that. It meant that I could look at the longevity. I could say we are going to be a long legacy organization and build very intentionally towards that. That is a gift most nonprofits don't have. We have to dedicate staff to just fundraising instead of doing the actual work on the ground that needs to be done. Now we get to do both and last for hopefully as long as we're needed. So that was, you know, it's a big shift and really asking ourselves who's around for this kind of shift and what's needed and where do we need to level up and where do we need to change and, you know, all of those things that come with running any kind of company. (music)
1: Now, one of the toughest things about making venture visionaries is the editing process. I have these incredible hour-plus conversations with amazing people and then have to work really, really hard to shorten them into 25 to 30 minutes. I'm usually successful, but I wasn't this time. There were a number of really deep, meaningful things that Nisha said that just felt really important for the time and place that we are in as a nation right now, that I wanted to give the full light of day. And so we'll actually be continuing with part two of our conversation with Nisha Anand in the next episode. But until then, I'm Thomas Igame. This is Venture Visionaries. Thank you for spending time with me.